0: God's love for us is great indeed. It's it's great qualitatively and quantitatively. He's got a lot of love for us and the quality of that love is great as well. That's what that passage in Ephesians was talking about, that he loved us even when we were still sinners. And so God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up and to make ourselves lovable and then he loves us. He loves us while we were still sinners. What a great truth that is. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we just want to thank you and praise you as we continue in worship this morning for your love that, that you have for us. Lord, we, we praise you that you would love sinners like us and that you loved us while we were still sinners, that you didn't wait for us to make ourselves lovable, but but you reached down and saved us as we were continuing to rebel against you. We thank you and praise you for that love this morning. Lord, we just want to pray because we know that there are others uh, and other places in the world, other people in our own community who really don't understand that love. They, they maybe understand something about religion. They understand the idea of trying to be a good person in order to merit their way to heaven, but they don't understand the gospel of love, the gospel that you love sinners, that you save sinners who are unacceptable uh, by the standard of righteousness. So Lord, we want to pray that you would use this offering this morning to help propel that message of the gospel to, to people that don't know it, who have never heard it. Lord, whether that's here in our own community or throughout through the missionaries that are all around the world, uh, we just want to pray that these offerings would be used in an effective way to take that gospel forward. We just thank you, Lord, that you've blessed us in so many ways. We pray that we would be generous givers, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Philippians chapter 2 this morning if you would take your Bibles and turn there Philippians 2 as our, our kids are heading out we're going to continue our series this morning on uh, community on on the biblical kind of fellowship that we want to be pursuing so this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 uh, beginning at verse number one so if you There is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage is uh, hopefully by now a well-known passage to you. I, I feel like I've preached on this several times. I know Vance preached from Philippians 2 not too long ago. Uh, But as I considered where we are as a church, and as we want to continue to think about uh, where we're struggling and and what exactly it is that is hindering the kind of biblical fellowship that we're called to, uh, I I just came to this passage again and again, and so I thought we would uh, look at this. I think one of the issues that we have as a church is I think we, we tend to struggle with what I would call a soft divisiveness a soft divisiveness. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we don't have outright hostility toward one another. There are some churches, and I've seen it, we've probably all seen it at a time or one time or another. Uh, There are churches that have some kind of big issue that flares up in them, and uh, the church gets divided. You have those church splits, and and you get groups of people that are are fractured and segmented, and and they're angry at each other, and, and there's real hostility in the church, and there's that kind of divisiveness, And I don't think we're there. I don't think we have that level of hostility or divisiveness in in the church. Uh, What I do think that we have, though, is is this soft divisiveness. We we are divided. We're we're not experiencing the kind of unity that this passage calls us to. Uh, In other words, it's not so much the idea that a big problem has come up and broken the unity of this church, uh, but instead, that I don't think we've ever really, as a group, at least in, in my time here, I don't think we've ever really come co- collectively to a place of real, true, biblical unity in the church. Now, You, you might question that and say, how, how could you say that? We're not having any problems. We're not fighting. We're, we don't have any of those big blow-up issues. Uh, so how could you say that we don't have unity in the church? And, and I would say this. It is because unity is not just... It is not merely the absence of negative things. Unity is not merely the absence of problems and fighting and big divisions in the church. Unity is a positive reality. It is something tangible that that we ought to experience as a church. Unity is not merely the absence of conflict and fighting. It is the presence of a spiritual oneness of mind and soul that is brought about through love. So I think we, we tend to say, well, there's no big problems. There's no church splits. We're not having ugly mean business meetings going on. And so we we have unity in the church. And what I would say is, Uh, We we maybe don't have those divisions, but I don't think we've achieved or come to the place where we have this spiritual oneness, this oneness of mind, a oneness of soul, a a oneness of love that this passage calls us to. We're not experiencing that kind of unity in this church. We are not united as a church and, and experiencing this harmony and spiritual oneness you know, when this unity is present, it's, it's evident. There is a sweetness to our fellowship. We, I know we've read Psalm 133. I know that I've preached on Psalm 133 before, uh, but I, it's such a good passage. It says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. When we have that kind of unity in the church, it's tangible. There's a sweetness to our fellowship. You see, the psalmist in that psalm is not just saying it's really good and it's really pleasant and it's really sweet when there aren't big divisions. Well, of course, that's it's good that there aren't divisions, but he's talking about something that's positive. He's talking about there's a there's a unity, there's a togetherness, there's a, a oneness in mind, a oneness in soul that brings a sweetness. To the fellowship of the people of God. It's something in the, in the positive rather than just the lack of a negative. When unity is present, fellowship is with each other is sweet and it's it's desirable. People want to be around each other. They, as I talked about in one sermon, they linger because they enjoy the presence and the company of other believers. They, they look for opportunity to converse and to spend time together because of the sweetness of. Of that fellowship that's what occurs when unity is there and I don't think we I don't think we're there when this oneness is present this unity is present relationships within the church are greater actually in quality than even family relationships when true biblical unity occurs within the church these relationships arise to a level that is even greater than, than can be had with our natural relationships in, in our natural family. I think Jesus taught that. And I think that's what we see in, in the New Testament church. When, when they came to Jesus and they said, your brothers and your mother are outside, they, they want you. They want you to come with them. And he says, who is my brother? Who, who is my mother? He says, those who do the will of God, the, my father, are my brother and my sister And my mother, what he's teaching there is Jesus is reordering the, the level of relationships in our mindset, the, the top relationships are spouse and, and sister and brother and mother and father and maybe cousin. And then we got these church people, uh, that, that are kind of down here on the same level as maybe our coworkers, maybe, maybe coworkers are here and church people are just slightly above them, uh, depending on what's going on in the church, uh, but, but that's kind of the ordering of relationships that we have. But when this, this unity is there, when, when we experience true New Testament fellowship, what happens is these relationships actually are reordered so that the, that the greatest relationships in our lives are, are actually those who share our common relationship with God our Father, just like Jesus said in this passage. Well, what is it that's hindering us from experiencing this level of unity, this spiritual oneness? Uh, well, that's what we've been looking at. We've been looking at hindrances or barriers to that. And I preached the first sermon on uh, apathy or the failure to love and how we then, because we don't have genuine love, we've got this apathy toward one another, this indifference, and so we mask it, we cover it up with superficial niceness. So I'll, I'll treat you nice. We'll kind of have a superficial relationship, but it's not genuine love. And then Jared did an excellent job last week in talking about the sin of fear and indifference. How maybe sometimes we've been hurt in the past. We've we've tried to have relationships in the church and and we've been burned. And so we've kind of stepped back and we keep people at at a distance. There's a fear of not being accepted and, and so on. And so fear is a hindrance to this kind of unity. But this morning, I think the focus of, of our passage and, and what, what it brings up is that one of the sins, one of the hindrances to experiencing unity within the church is a selfish and a self-focus, a, a selfishness or a self-focus. We're so focused on ourselves and the things that we have going on within our own little life, our jobs, our careers, our kids, and so on, that we don't feel like we have time for relationships outside of, of our own little world. As we continue to think about this sin that's, that's hindering us from experiencing deep and meaningful fellowship in the church, I think one of the chief sins from which we must repent is a sinful self-focus. For many of us, life is all about my interest, my desires, my perceived needs. And here's the problem, when my life is all about, it's all full of seeking my own interest, then I don't have time to seek your interest or to build a relationship with you. When that is the case, I'm not likely to pursue a relationship with you unless I find something enjoyable or useful to me because my focus is on me. And so if you meet some need uh, for me, then then we can have a relationship. But outside of that, I'm not going to pursue a relationship with you. When I'm focused on my needs, desires, and interests, then unless you in some way meet my needs, fulfill my desires, or satisfy my interests, I am not going to seek a relationship with you. You know, when I talk to people and uh, say, you know, what is it, what's the problem, what's the hindrance for for having more relationships or having deeper relationships? One of the things that comes back all the time is, you know, I just don't have enough time. I don't, I don't have enough energy to, uh, Built on on that is this concept that my time is mine. This This is the rationale. My time and my energy is meant to be spent on me and what I want to do. And after I get everything done that I want to do, after all my energy is spent on everything that I want to pursue in life, then if I happen to have anything left, in the tank, if I've got any time left over, if I've got any energy left over, well then maybe I should pursue relationships with other people in, in the church. And what this passage is teaching is that that's upside down. It, it really is. It's, it, this passage is teaching us that our primary focus ought to be on others and not on ourselves. And so uh, I think this is what this passage is, is calling us to. I think we're failing to come together as a unified church in a real sense, in a meaningful way. And this is in result, at least in part, because of a self-centeredness or a self-focus. And so what what does this passage call us to? What what is the point of this passage? Well, I think the thesis of of this passage, what Paul is saying here, is that Paul is calling the Philippians to unity, the, the kind of sweet fellowship, the unity that ought to be present in a church, He's doing that based on gospel realities that we're going to see, but it's achieved through a humble other-centeredness that is modeled by Jesus Christ himself. And so we're called to, to unity, and that unity is achieved by a humble other-centeredness, not a self-centeredness, but an other-centeredness, an other-focused uh, that is modeled ultimately by Jesus Christ Himself. If we're going to build deeper relationships and experience this kind of oneness of mind, oneness of soul, this, this, this kind of oneness of love that is called for in this passage, then it's going it's going to have to mean some changes in the way that we think about. It. It's, it's going to have to be some change in the status quo. Uh, we must shift our focus away from ourselves and begin to focus on others. And it's only through that that we will begin to experience, I believe, true unity so let's dig into this passage for a minute and we're really going to walk through this a little bit at a time the, the focus here is going to be on verses three and four uh, but I want us just to walk through this passage we'll start in verse two and and there gives us really the main point which is a call to unity a call to unity in verse two he says complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul says, Look, I've, I've labored among you. I want you to complete my joy. And the way that you do that is by being of one mind. He, he gives here uh, a, a call to unity, but, but he does it in four different ways. He says, Be of one mind. And then he says, Being of uh, the same love, the same mind, the, the same love, being in full accord. And of one mind. So four different ways he says basically uh, the same thing. It's a call to unity. He says, one, one person says this about this passage. He says, it's plain that the primary thought of the whole passage focuses not on Paul's personal yearnings for joy, but on the Philippians' unanimity of mind. Unity of mind is therefore Paul's pervasive concern in this exhortation. The whole passage Paul is focused on this one main point. I want you as a church to be unified. I want you as a church to experience what Psalm 133 says is good and is pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. Philippians, I want you to have that kind of unity. And he says uh, here, he, he explains it in, in three different ways, really, four, uh, but, but two of them are the same. First is having the same mind, and that corresponds to the last one, which is to be of one mind. So he says, have the same mind, and then he goes on to say, be in full accord, have the same love, and be of one mind. So that's, that's the first thing, to be of the same mind. What does he mean when he says, church, be of the same mind? Well, this isn't a call for everyone to set aside their personal opinions, you all stop having diverse opinions and diverse preference, preferences and you all just think the same way. You all dress the same way, act the same way, have the same personalities, but nobody, you know, kind of a cult mentality. Nobody can be different at all. You all got to kind of be cookie cutter. You got to be the same. That's, that's not what he's calling us for. Uh, that's not what he's calling us to. He's not saying that no one can disagree or have differing ideas about anything. But when he says to have the same mind, he's talking about a mindset, have the same mindset. Not that, not that every thought has to be the same, but that even in our differing opinions, at the most fundamental level of our thinking, we share a common perspective, some common realities, a common mindset What this means is even as we kind of have some differing perspectives, even as we have different opinions on on various different issues and we act differently and talk differently and think differently in in different ways, yet at the most basic level, uh, there's something that we share in common. We have the same mindset or perspective that draws us together. And so what we have then is, is that we have unity even in diversity. There's unity even in diversity. Because at the fundamental, at the most fundamental level, we have the same mindset. We're going to talk about what is that mindset in a minute. But then he goes on, not only the same mind or one mind, but also he says to be of full accord, to be in agreement. That that word literally is made up of two words. Uh, It's a compound word. It it really means to be of the same soul, uh, to to be of the same soul. One person said this, uh, described it this way, to be together in spirit. Another person says it means to be soul joined. Uh, one, one dictionary says uh, that, that it means to be as one. And so what this is talking about then is talking about the deepest level of our beings. When we talk about our soul or our spirit being one together, we're, we're talking about some deep unity. We're, we're not just talking about some tangential or some uh, something out there on the edges of our life that we happen to share a little bit in common he's saying here I want you to be unified and 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 I want that unity to be at the core of your being something that is that is at the deepest part of who you are hopefully that doesn't run through this microphone or anything that wouldn't be good if that happens just disregard everything that I say <laughs> all right Uh So what this means is that there's something that we hold in common, something that we share together that binds us together, even as we might have differing perspectives on certain political issues uh, or or certain things out in the community. We might might have some differing perspectives on those things, but at the core of who we are, there's something that unites us and draws us together. And then there's a third way that he talks about this being unified. It's to have the same love. We have the same love. For one another, It's a mutual love. Again, it's that passage that we've cited so much. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So be of the same mind, be of the same spirit and have the same love, a mutual love for one another. And I think that love for one another is really starting to get close at what that what it means to have the same mind and to be unified. That love, I think, is the means that brings us together so we see in passages like Colossians 3 14 he says this and above all these things put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony put on love which binds everything in perfect harmony it's love that brings us together in that way well what is the foundation for this unity we see it in verse number one in verse 1 Um, we see he he gives some foundational reasons that we ought to have this kind of love. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. He's saying here, uh, look, realize and recognize these gospel realities that you share, these things that you share in common. And because of that, uh, then pursue this kind of unity. This is the way that the Apostle Paul often works. John Piper says that, that, that usually Paul, the way that he makes this, this argument, is that oughts, you ought to do this, always comes from what is. So, so Paul never just gives us commands kind of in a vacuum or uh, just out in, in, in the peripheral. Paul gives us commands that are rooted in the gospel, what God has already done for us. And that's what he's doing here. He's doing it rather quickly, and he's just throwing out some bullet points. But he's saying, because of these things, and if you've experienced these things, then you ought to pursue this unity. Well, what are those things? Well, any encouragement in Christ. Look, if you've experienced encouragement in Christ, then you ought to pursue unity with your brothers and sisters. I, I think there's a connection here between the kinds of things that he's mentioned. He's not just mentioning random realities that, that don't have any connection here. He's saying, look, uh, we, we need to be an encouragement to one another. We need to be have, have the kind of unity where we're encouraging one another. And if you've experienced unity in Christ, if you've experienced this encouragement in Christ, well, then you ought to be engaged and, and ought to pursue unity and encouragement for one another. Any comfort? from love any comfort from love have you ever experienced the comfort of God's love in your life have you ever been through those trials we talk about Chelsea and Andy going through those trials one of the things that I'm praying for them uh, is is that they would experience God's comfort because you know at the end of the day uh, we can send texts and we can call we can even go and visit we can pray for them but ultimately the thing that will bring them through a trial like this is the love of God the comfort of God the strength that only God can give And, you know, if we've experienced that, and and I know that I have personally, hopefully you know what I'm talking about. If you've experienced God's comfort and God's love in that way, then it ought to propel you to pursue others so that you can be uh, a comfort to them. Any participation, and that word participation in the spirit is, is the word koinonia. It's the word for fellowship. If you have experienced fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then you ought to pursue fellowship And pursue this unity in the church. Any affection and sympathy. Have you ever felt the affection and the sympathy of God? If so, then pursue that in the church. I think that's what he's calling us to here. So that's the foundation. But what is the means? What is the means of pursuing this how do we get to this unity okay we we see what that unity is it's a oneness of mind oneness of love uh, a a oneness of our souls being joined together it's a deep kind of unity Uh, we, we see the foundation for it is the gospel the things that we've experienced because of Christ but but how do we achieve unity how do we get to that position and that place as a church of being unified well that's what verses three and four call us to, And, and that, I think, is what the main thing that we want to focus on this morning. Verse number three, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, that is a big, big order. But that's what we have here in each of these verses, verse three and verse four, we we see a negative and then a positive. So in verse three, the negative is the negative is do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The positive, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So we're called to achieve this unity by not pursuing our own selfish desires not not pursuing what we want first, but in humility, counting others or regarding others as more important than ourselves. That's a, that's a big order. Notice, notice the totality of this prohibition. He says, do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, your, your motivating factor, the motivating factor in your life, what drives you should not be your own selfish interest. What do I want? What is this good for me? How is this going to impact my life? Is this going to help me achieve my goal? Do nothing in your life from that kind of selfish ambition or conceit But in humility, so so don't do that. But on the positive side, this is what you should do. You should adopt a humble mindset which thinks lovely of yourself and thinks more of others. But in humility, count others as more important or more significant than yourselves. I'm supposed to put down my own interests put down what I think I want to pursue, put down what I think is good for me, my own selfish ambitions. I need to to kill those off. I need to push those down and I need to cultivate a humble mindset which begins to look out at others and count them as more significant than me. Well, that's a a heart change. Okay, verse four is going to give us, you know, kind of an action to take. But this step number one is just a change in our heart. We need to regard other people as more significant than ourselves. And this isn't just some some ideal. This isn't just something that, oh yeah, we should do that. But this is something that we as believers are called to. It's a real command in Scripture. And, and sometimes I think we read things like that and we just gloss right over it. We don't, we don't stop and meditate. We don't stop and take this in. The full weight of what he's saying is, I need to stop living for me. I need to stop thinking about my desires and my ambitions in life all the time. And I need to start thinking about other people. And I need to start putting their needs and their desires before even my own needs and desires. It's a, it's a changed mindset. I think what that means is that we've got some uh, some spiritual battle to do, because I I think when I read that text, it says do nothing from selfish ambition. And and I think as I look at my own life and as I look at our community and our church, I think many of us are probably doing everything from selfish ambition. The, the, The gauge as far as what we do in our lives has nothing to do with other people and it has everything to do with me. What, what do I want? Where do I want to go? What, what goals do I want to achieve? How do I want to spend my time and my energy? And if I do everything that I want to do and pursue everything that I want to pursue and I've got a little margin over here that's left, well, then I can think about others in that little margin. And Paul's saying, flip that upside down. Do for others. Think of others. Regard them as more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition and so we've got some spiritual battle to do with our own souls we need to repent of sin in our own hearts because if you're like me I think this passage is hitting me right between the eyes there's some repentance that needs to happen because so often my life from morning till night from the time I wake up till the time I go to bed is all about what I want and not about others I think we need to be fighting this battle we need to be repenting we need to be questioning then, don't we? We need to be questioning if we're going to really repent of this sin, if we're going to really adopt this kind of mindset of Philippians 2 verse 3, uh, then it means we're going to have to think about our schedule. It, it means we're going to have to think about and maybe make some changes to, to the way that we live our lives and to the way that we schedule our time and the way that we use our energies in a way that is much more other-centered than it is centered on us it's a humble mindset that we need to adopt. As so often is the case in Christianity, uh, we don't begin with the externals. We don't begin with the actions. We begin with the heart, and that's where we need to begin here. We need to, he says, adopt this mindset which focuses on others. It regards others. It counts others as more significant than ourselves. Now, the, ver- the, the second the second command that's in verse 4 also has a negative and then a positive, a negative and a positive so verse 4 let each of you look not only to his own interest and in reality that only is not there in the original language uh, verse 4 so let's read it without that let each of you look not to his own interest let each of you look not to his own interest, I think it has greater impact uh, and then the, the positive, but also to the interest of others. That also is there, and that's why in the first part of that verse they say, not only, but also. But, but in the original, it's not there. So, so let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So here's this call to be others-centered. Not self-centered. Not focused on myself, but focused rather On others and their need literally it means the things and I think the King James that's the way it says uh, look not only to your own things but the things of others the word interest here uh, I think is is suitable so we need to be looking not at our own interest not what we have going on in our lives not what our goals not what our ambitions are uh, not what we would like to achieve not what we want but on the interest of others it's an other-centeredness, an other focus. To, to look, this idea of looking means to watch carefully. Uh, it, it means to keep an eye on something. And so often, as I said before when we talked about it in First John, we say, well, I didn't see any needs. I didn't know what, what to do. Well, Well, the problem is too often our eyes are just focused right on our life it's focused on the things that we want and what we've going on, what we've got going on. We're not looking at others. We're not seeing what's going on in their life because we're so self focused. We're so selfish. We're we're introspective. We're not looking out at others, and that that's the problem. We need to shift our eyes away from our own lives and begin to look at others. Don't look at your own interests. Don't don't keep an eye on what you got going on. But instead keep an eye on or keep a watch out for what is going on in others' lives. Look to the interest of others. This is a command to live an others centered life. Well, do you see the, the problem here, don't you? As we kind of make an application of, of these two verses. Uh, one is this we, we simply cannot achieve unity while we each individual while each individual is pursuing their own. Own autonomous life. We as a church cannot achieve the kind of unity, the oneness of mind, oneness of spirit, oneness of love that he calls for. We cannot achieve that kind of unity while each one of us as individuals is pursuing our own interest. Unity can only occur when we begin to seek the interest of others. This is what I counsel people all the time in, in marriage, and this is one of the things that you've you've got to get right if you want to have a healthy and a growing marriage is that you can't be focused on yourself. Uh, you've got to be begin to focus on your spouse. The Bible says that the 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 two individuals will become one flesh, and I tell people all the time, you, you know. By virtue of the ceremony, God used you as one. You become one flesh. But in reality, for that one flesh union to really occur, where you really become one soul, one flesh, you've got to both put aside your own individual interests and begin to pursue and love each other. And it's through that pursuit of each other that, that you really will become one. Well, it's the same thing in in the church. If all of us individually are just living our lives, we're not focused, we're not looking at other people, we're just regarding what's going on in our life, our eyes are just right on, on our schedule this week and what we got going on with our kids, and we're not looking and thinking about others, we will never come to a place of experiencing this kind of unity. And so I think what we need to be doing then is we need to be repenting we need to be looking for ways we need to begin opening our eyes to see the needs of others around us and then to act on it you know as we think about uh needs that come up in the church even right now with chelsea and andy we as a church need to be looking for ways to help them this like this is a big deal and we're we're praying and hopefully this medicine can can just help this uh to, to, to be canceled out for, for everything to go well and, and and that's the hope and that that's the goal but even if that's the case I mean there's a day a few days here where this is going to be challenging to them they need encouragement and we as a church ought to be thinking about that see if your life is on well today I'm going to go home and I don't you know, is there, is there a race on? I'm going to watch the game or watch the race and I'm going to go do this and I'm going to take care of that. And then, well, of course, tomorrow I got to, you know, get into my work week. And, man, I'm thinking about Chelsea and Andy, but I just really don't have time. Well, we need to begin to be thinking about others ahead of ourselves. We need to be thinking what if I were in that position and I've been there, we, we've spent months in, in Cozer Hospital, not all at once, but weeks at a time at different points. It's a lonely place. It's a hard place when you've got a child in the hospital and you're concerned about what's the outcome of this. It, it's not a good place to be. And so as we, we think about that, w- there may be some things you need to cut out in, in order to reach out and help somebody that's in a need like that. But, but we're so self-focused. We say, well, you know, if you need anything, just let us know. They need something. They're in a moment of need. They might need a call. They might need a text. They might need a visit. They they, they might need some encouragement. They might need meals. Whatever that is, they they have needs. Can they get through it without us? Yeah, they could do that. They could get through it without us. But if we're to have this kind of unity, this kind of love, what that means is we want to come alongside of them and just try to ease their burden a little bit, try to encourage them through that. And it's not just them. I'm using that because it's a pressing example. But there are all kinds of needs in the church. There are people who are lonely. There are people who need relationships. There are people who are starving for fellowship. There are all kinds of implications to this. Once you begin to stop, you know, just focusing and staring at what you got right in front of you and you begin to turn and look at other people, you will see needs all around you and then act on those needs. And look, I know... Some people don't want to receive. Uh, so, some people don't, you know, they, they don't uh, uh, feel like they need any help. And I've been there where I've tried to help somebody or tried to do something, and you strike out. It's like, well, they didn't really need that. You know, you took them a meal. It's like, oh, we already ate. Sorry. You know, maybe have it tomorrow or something. Those kind of things happen. But, but look, we've got to begin trying, okay? We, we've got to begin trying. And, and we've got to move away from this mindset. I, th- I think a lot of it we think, well, They'll be able to get through it. They'll make it through it right. They can get through it without you, but, but they shouldn't have to get through it without you. We need to begin having an others-centered life. I think this, as I've already said, I think this has an application in terms of our schedule, in terms of, of our energy. This kind of unity and these kind of deep relationships cannot just happen on the margin. Deep relationships, the kind of fellowship that we want to cultivate in this church cannot just happen on the margins of your life. It won't happen. thats I think that's why it's not happening to a great degree. In other words, I've got all my life, I've got all my stuff, all my events, all my family, everything that I've got going on, and then I've got this little sliver of time and energy over here, and I'm going to try to have relationships over here. It's not going to happen that way. We've got to begin to flip our lives upside down if we want to cultivate these kind of deep relationships we need to have an others centered life as we close this morning you say that seems like a tall order that seems like something that really would would almost require supernatural help in order to really do that in order to really live that out and I would say you're exactly right but notice verse five have this mind and that's when he says be of one mind and, and, and have the same mind. This is the mind that he's talking about. This is the, the thing that unifies us. It is this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him a name and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus is our example in this. The life that we're called to live, this others-centered kind of life is the kind of life that Jesus lived. Jesus had perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect fellowship with his Father in heaven. He was lacking nothing. He needed nothing. And yet he laid that aside temporarily to come to this earth because he was others-centered. He, he humbled himself to think about you more than he thought about his needs because he, did, he didn't need any of us, right? You understand that? He didn't need us. There was nothing lacking in God that he's like, man, I wish I had a friend or something like that. And so, well, let me, let me go save these people and then maybe they'll be. He had perfect unity, perfect fellowship with his father. He needed nothing. And yet he loved us enough to lay aside all of that and to pursue us and to think about us above his own comfort and, and that's what led him to the cross that's what led him to come to this earth and notice verse number five not only it's not as if Jesus is just our example some of you are like me in school and when you took math you, you looked at the example problems and you're like yeah that looks good and then you go to actually do the problem you're like that's a that's a whole different ball game right I, like I can see what they did there, but usually they always picked out the easiest problem. Now I, I got to actually come down here and do the problem. Uh, that's, that's a little harder. Well, well, that's the way some of us think about Jesus. Like Jesus is our example. We just look at Jesus and, and we try really hard to be like Jesus. But what verse 5 is saying is, look, have the mind of Jesus. Think like Jesus thought. Follow the example of Jesus. But, but notice, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. In Christ Jesus, here's the reality. The the Jesus who lived that life, the the Son of God who laid aside all of these prerogatives that he had in heaven as the Son of God and came to this earth and died on the cross, the Son of God who did all of that is now dwelling in you. You have his mind. You, You have the spirit of Jesus Christ living within you. And so live that out. Let let that mind be in you. Let it saturate you. Let it permeate your actions. Live out who you really are in Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. You have Christ in your heart, in your mind. You have the spirit of Christ. So live like Christ. That's what he's saying in verse five. I think that's what we need to do if we're going to have an other centered life we're not going to be able to do it in our own power and in our own strength we need to be guided by the spirit of jesus christ who lives within us let's pray our heavenly father we come to you this morning and we do pray that you would give us this mind that you would lord you've given us this mind that, that you would help this mind this mindset a, a humble mindset that looks toward the needs of others. We, we pray that that would permeate our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance, Lord, because we are so selfish. We are so self-focused as a people. And Lord, I just pray that you would grant us repentance, that you'd grant us the ability and the strength and the grace that we need to begin to live like Christ. Help us lay aside the things that we want and begin to focus not just on our interest, but on the interest and on the needs of others. God, we pray that you would do this work in our life and in our church. We pray that we would experience this unity, the oneness of mind, that we would be in full accord and that we would have the same love. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.